If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. You meet someone online and there's this instant connection. It's amazing how much the two of you just seem to click. They live somewhere far away and there's some plausible reason they can't travel to meet you. They tell you they're in love with you and you feel optimistic for the first time in a long time. They have a successful career, yet somehow they need money from you to solve a short-term problem, always with the promise of paying you back. Time goes on and they need more money more urgently. You've started to see the cracks and begin to wonder whether they've been lying this whole time. All of a sudden, it hits you. You've been scammed. Fool Me Twice is the story of my mother, Jules Hannaford, a woman who was drawn into the dangerous world of sweetheart scams. After a trip overseas to meet a stranger, a dangerous altercation in a Manchester hotel room, and thousands of pounds lost for good, she's here to tell her story. Fool Me Twice, a true crime podcast, will be available on all podcast platforms in late 2019. It's Dr. Scott. And Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back. We're here with LA. Not so. Confidential. <laughs> are we doing that at the top now? <laughs> I don't know what we're doing. I was just talking to Shiloh about how unbelievably annoyingly hot it is. This is the time of year where all I want to do is stay in a dark, air-conditioned room. Here we go again, <laughs> talking about the weather. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> what have you been up to, Dr. Shiloh? What's oh going on? Oh my God, we're having a slumber party this week. I know, Shiloh's staying at my house. I'm going to some training at UCLA, and there's no way I'm driving two hours there and two hours yeah, home. So crazy. I'm crashing here for a few nights, which makes it... Awesome. Thank yeah. you. In this absolutely cluttered guest room of a podcast studio. That's okay. That's good. Maybe I'll have some inspiration tonight. I'll think of something yeah, for hope, future episodes. I hope my action figures don't come to life and strangle you in the middle <laughs> of the night. I just noticed your uh, Reagan. Oh, you never? Uh, yeah. I never saw your little pop. What do they call them? Pop, Funko Pop. Funko Pops. Yeah, that from uh, last fall when Al came over and did our Exorcist episode. Right. Yeah, like it's a Funko Pop Reagan. <laughs> and she's got puke all over her little dress. Yay! Anyway, so uh, what have we been up to? We have been up to a lot. We have some enormous news coming out, and we're like sitting with bated breath on whether or not we can announce it. Um, but we, 
we will sit on it. We'll sit on it. Um, it's great news, folks. We're really excited. Because there's two things that are tied together, so let's just wait. Yeah. Um, so but, by the time this episode airs, we may have like a little thing going on, a little tandem or a little tag at the end that announces yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to put together a couple things in L.A. also, like live events to come to. So just stay tuned to our social media for that. But, gosh, I, I think we're going to have a lot between now and the end of the year. Yeah, we're actually we're really busy. We actually, I mean, that was one of the conversations we had as we're putting the brakes on things because we got a lot of traveling to do spring through early summer next year so we're gonna shut it down and just make sure we're recording right after our we got one event a month the next three months pretty much as well as recording pretty much but we're gonna try and get away to uh the mountains next weekend labor day weekend yeah and maybe we'll record something then if we have time to. yeah we can, maybe That'd be fun. we can find a horrible crime up there to talk about i found a few yeah okay um so but we have been doing a lot of stuff i went to an FBI training on threat assessment, which was amazing. That was really, really good. That was a FBI guy from Orange County mm-hmm. that had some really interesting information on incels. You know, it's this this whole... It's funny that we were kind of on the leading edge of talking about it because more and more people are becoming aware. And also in the world of threat assessment, it's becoming a real big deal. Yeah, finally. Yeah. And then last week, you know, week before last, I spent, I got to go for a whole half a day. <laughs> I'll try not to get political about it. Um, instead of the whole week of the ATAP conference in Anaheim, which mm-hmm. is the uh, Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. But I lucked out the day I went, I had three back-to-back kick-ass presentations nice. that were great. So um, they also talked about incels there, right? Yeah, there was this really, like, I had never heard of this guy before, and I'll put his name up on our notes, but he's a forensic psychiatrist mm-hmm. um, from Michigan, and he really, the the stuff that he presented, like, would be another episode for us. In fact, I think we really should think about talking with him. Sure. Because he used some data where grad students went in and basically put all of the discussion boards, like thousands of pages of incel discussion boards, into a linguistic algorithm program that connected. Well, first it located all of the keywords that were repeated the numbers of times and then the words that were related to them. It's almost like a computer version of uh, what Fitz did yeah. when he caught the Unabomber yeah. is like looking at all these linguistic samples mm-hmm. and how they connect to each other. So that was That's super cool. Really interesting. What else yeah. did they? What else did you see with the topics? That day? Uh, oh, two examples of school shootings that were just brutal. There was one here that happened several years ago in Oxnard, and. Um, I mean, you know what? I don't even want to go into a rabbit hole. It was yeah. fantastic. We might talk about it in the future, but, you know, I'll, I'll totally get distracted. What have you been doing? <laughs> Tell about you're going to a training all week. What's the training about? Yeah, I, I know. I talked about this last year. God, I can't believe it's been a year. But um, uh, one of the FBI's behavioral analysis trainings that they do annually here in Southern California. So they have a lot of the profilers come out. And do case studies or talk about techniques. Um, And it's just, I've been going to this training on and off probably like 15 years. And it's it's my favorite. It's like the thing I wait around for every year. Um, Your partner's there and you're not. (laughs) I know. But it's kind of cool. There's a lot of people there that I know from like various avenues of my life, which is kind of weird. Um, But it's cool to catch up and just 
go, like have a full week to just soak in knowledge is the best. And I had like just a really, it was a very challenging week for my unit this last week. So it's nice just to like sit and listen and soak it up and not have to do clinical services for a little bit. And um, so, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to what they have the rest of the week. Today was day one. so You know, that's probably something we should talk about in, in a future episode. I mean, how we've, we, we touched on it in our uh, episode about Columbine, uh, about vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. And resiliency. But, and resiliency. But, you know, it's and it's not only us that work in the more sort of extreme, hardcore end of this type of work with mental health. It's even people who work in private practice right. have vicarious trauma through listening to, you know, the horrific stories of the people that come to them for services. Yeah, I think we I think yeah. we all I'll plot out an episode in the future okay. about self care and how every I mean, even as grad students, I mean Jesus, there were times I was trying to finish my dissertation and I was on the floor like, what have I done? Mm-hmm. What have I done? Yeah. My life is over. I might so I, I was interviewed by a journalist last week for an article um, and it, the reason he was talking to me was about vicarious trauma for people who work in the realm of sex offenders. Um, he's, <laughs> his article might have to take a different angle. So it's on hold right now. It was supposed to come out this last week, but, um, if that comes out, I'll let you guys know as well. So you can find that. In that print. sounds cool. Well, in print, on, yeah. you know, on the world wide web. On the intertubes. <laughs> so, Hey folks, just a heads up. Um, so there's, you know, we are relatively primitive here in our recording capacity, and it's Southern California. It's 7.39 in the evening, and it's still 98 degrees right now. So all of the air conditioners are running, and there's nothing I can do about the sound outside in the alley. So all sorry. All the, <laughs> the air conditioners of Los Angeles, They're you're hearing that running. right now. So, hey, what, are, what, are, what are we talking about this week? What's okay, going on? So did, I reach, did I do any I, research? <laughs> probably not, but that's totally okay. I feel like I'm going to sort of hijack this one because... You did a lot. I did a lot, but this... So, I'm just driving to work, catching up on my podcasts, and, you know, one of our favorites that we've talked about before and we've played their promos before is Nordic True Crime. Oh, God. I love... I'm, her voice is hypnotic. It is the best. Yeah. And still, hands down, best theme music. So, um, but... She did an episode on how the term Stockholm Syndrome was coined, and she highlighted that case. And I thought, you know, uh, Stockholm Syndrome, as someone who is now trained as a crisis negotiator, I've never really done a deep dive on Stockholm Syndrome, like the, the actual syndrome itself. And it was super interesting to listen to her talk about the case and where it all started. Um, but I thought we need to do a deep dive. I completely agree with you. I think, and in fact, I even found an article because I had the same experience. It's like, well, we talk about it all the time as if it's this thing and it's this legitimized thing with standardized criteria. And there isn't any. I mean, there's no. there's four bullet points that we'll yeah. go over. It depends who you're looking at. Exactly. It depends on who you're talking about. But one, I found a phenomenal um, research article and uh, EBSCOhost, which is one of the data portals that professionals have to research, uh, I mean, to have access to research journals. And I went, you know, I was like, I went as broad as possible and mm-hmm. I got a sociology 
uh, publication that talked about the vernacular and how actually the even just the title Stockholm Syndrome in itself became a meme. Right. And it, it, it gathered meaning over the years that never really had that much to do with the original uh, incident. And, and no it's been academic backing, none at all. Nothing. And it's been applied to all sorts of mm-hmm. like, there's a list of, you know, the top 15 best movies about Stockholm syndrome. 12 of them are not about Stockholm <laughs> right. syndrome. They're about abuse. They're just abuse. Right. So we're going to touch on that as much as we can. Yeah. So our, our topic is Stockholm syndrome. So we're going to try and cover a few things, um, including of course, a few gems of movies that we have found. Right. Um, that we're going to talk about. Um, so again, I just want to cite Nordic true crime as if you want a, a super intense, um, just layout of the whole original crime, then go and listen to their episode. But essentially, so this starts in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973 when, and you're going to have to bear with me with a lot of these, uh, Scandinavian names, <laughs> I'm going to try and uh, channel my Scandinavian roots and (laughs) pronounce these correctly. But um, so essentially this guy, Clark Olofsson, think Olaf and then son. um, You're actually going to tell me that's the one you had the most problems with. We have like (laughs) the rest of the names are like Ikea furniture and you were struggling with Olofsson. No, I'm not struggling with it. But the other guy, his partner, the last name is Olson. So I'm differentiating. Oh, I see. Okay, that's going to get very confusing. Like Ikea furniture. (laughs) You're terrible. Okay, so Clark Olofsson is, he's just a bad dude. He's got a long, violent rap sheet starting in childhood. I mean, he escaped from juvenile incarceration. He escaped from adult prison. He was present during a robbery where a cop was killed, escaped from prison after that eight-year sentence, fled to the Canary Islands, um, caught again, escaped again, And then eventually sent away for like six years for a bank robbery. And in one of these prison stints, he meets this guy, Jan Olsen, um, whom Clark Olofsson sort of becomes obsessed with him and sort of starts looking up to him. And he's like a mentor. Are you going to keep that accent? Are you every time? It's going to be like. Every time you say the name, you're going to say it like Mrs. Olaf, Mrs. Olson from the coffee commercials. Shut up. I am not even want to look at you during this episode. Okay. You're dead to me. I'm, okay. Oh, All right. So you're taking me off track here. Um, so Clark is looking up to Jan. Um, they do out this prison sentence together and Jan is still in prison and Clark is out and Clark decides to walk into this bank near Stockholm, Sweden, um, on August 23rd, 1973, in the morning. And he walks in with a long wig and sunglasses and a cowboy hat and a submachine gun and dynamite and basically shoots some rounds into the air and says, let's get this party started. And um, basically takes four bank workers hostage, three women, one man. Um, A cop shows up just responding to the silent alarm, and he ends up shooting him, kind of is taken by surprise that this cop shows up and and shoots that cop in the hand. Um, And so the cops back off at that point and sort of surround the bank. So 
he is in there with these four hostages. He turns on the radio immediately. And this is like the first televised um, and big news coverage happening to a crime in progress in Stockholm. So this is like everyone is tuned in. Wow. And this is 10 o'clock in the morning. Um and this, the media plays a big part in this because that's where a lot of this just kind of. So goes this was really rails. a lot of firsts. This is a lot of firsts. Yeah. It's, it's negotiating. It's, um, I mean, really, crisis negotiations weren't born until the '70s in New York. So, you know, nice little nonviolent Stockholm, Sweden is like, what the hell is happening? And he was actually, I think, he was faking an American accent for a while, so they thought. Is this guy an American? Because this is like an American movie, right? So um, it, it was just a lot of confusion and just unprecedented in this part of the world. So here, here's his, his ransom demands. He wants three million Swedish kron. He wants a getaway car. He wants vests, helmets, additional weapons. And he wants his buddy, Olafsson, to be released from prison and brought to him. Wow. And so their plan is that they are going to then leave in this escape vehicle with all this money and these vests and these guns and take the hostages with them to ensure their safety that, so the cops don't, you know, shoot up the car or whatever. And then get away and sail away to France or something at some point. So this is all playing out on live television. The ordeal lasts six days. The police actually meet every single one of the demands including bringing Jan from prison to wow. the bank and so this turns into this you know they're obviously uh, co-conspirators at this point carrying out um, this new crime um, but the police stop short of saying you can leave with the hostages they absolutely say you cannot do that okay um so they're they're not bowing to the demands of the negotiators and the police, and the police aren't bowing to that last demand of the the hostage takers. And by day two, the police were able to get microphones drilled into the building and sort of hear a lot of what was going on. And the hostages and the captors were on a first name basis by day two. And for whatever reason, because police over there don't have a lot of experience in this. I mean, they start thinking that this is a strange thing. Um, why are the hostages not um, being more defiant? Why are they on a first name basis with these people that are obviously violent? And sort of the, the wheels start turning in the direction of, okay, what's going on here? Um, so a news reporter calls into the bank and is on the phone with 23-year-old Kristen Enmark. She is a female, like, clerk typist at the bank. Um, and she's on the phone with him, and at some point they actually patch in the prime minister to speak to her. So she tells the prime minister... We want to leave. We're disappointed that you won't let us leave with the captors. They have a plan. We trust them. She says, I fully trust both of them. They've been very nice. If the police attack, they're going to cause our death. And this is all broadcast live on the air because the original phone call is with this news anchor. Right. So this is all just out there unfolding for the public. Um, it 
again, this goes on several more days. They they eventually get hunkered down in the vault area um, of the bank, but the captors will tie ropes around the the hostages and sort of let them walk out, get some air. Some point, they actually trust the women to go use the restroom by themselves. And each time the women come back, the, the police were actually in an upstairs level above. So they're they're in the same building, actually inside the building. So they could have run up the stairs to the police. And they knew this because the police were coming up and down the stairs, checking on their well-being, um, that sort of thing. It wasn't like they were so totally blocked out of the building altogether. But they, they sort of stick with the plan of we hope the negotiations work out. They'll let us leave with them and or... Our captors will let us go. So the the police don't only have microphones, but they end up putting cameras where they drill into the ceiling of the vault. The captors shoot through the holes and shoot at the cops. So there's still like this ongoing violent behavior. Um, one detective, I think, gets hit. Um, but but up until this point, no, no um, captors have been harmed right no hostages no hostages right right no hostages have been harmed um and then at some point they are going to fill the room with gas but that gets leaked over the radio so what the hostage takers do is they tie nooses around all the necks of the hostages and sort of sit they're standing but they say if you put gas in here and they pass out they're going to die. So it's going to be the police causing their death. So they use that as a tactic. doesn't work. I mean, the the cops are able to gas everybody and end up getting them out of there. Um, So when they are leaving the bank, the the hostages, they have all come to. So they stop the gas in just enough time um, to totally, you know, have them pass out or have the situation with the nooses work. But the hostages get up and essentially surround their captors to keep them safe and walk out. And then when they're taking them into custody, they're essentially like tearing them apart from each other. The hostages are crying. They're saying, don't hurt them. You know, that sort of thing is happening. So during the end of this um, ordeal and seeing it through, the police bring in this uh, Swedish criminologist and psychiatrist who they kind of want to analyze both the behavior of the offenders, but the behavior of the victims as well to see what's going on here. Um, So Niles uh, Bergeau, he is the the psychiatrist that gets called in um, and he starts... It's really interesting because he starts rationalizing the behavior of the offenders from um, a model that we call the rational actor model. So basically, he's assuming that the in the rational actor model, you assume that the decision maker is a rational person where if they have sufficient information, they're deducing and predicting behavior. Um, so he's kind of looking at this very rational view when he's talking very about the behavior. Very black and white. Very and black and according white. According to like preconceived notions of human behavior in a certain setting, right? Right. Which is really wrong. Because this is so so dynamic and fluid. Exactly. It's and completely it, different. It's an extraordinary situation. It is. So he he's sort of deducing the behavior of these criminals and making sense of it. And then he looks at these female victims and says they're completely acting irrational. Um, he even goes so far as to say is that there was a sexual attachment 
to these perpetrators. And that's why these women are like out of their mind. And that led to the distrust of the police. Um, so he, he kind of goes off the rails with his consultation. Um, but the police kind of go with it and he ends up coining the term Stockholm syndrome. Um, and Kristen Enmark is essentially the one that was on the phone. She's essentially the first person ever to be quote unquote diagnosed with this. And this really weighed heavy on her for decades. I mean, for until, you know, she's been, she was interviewed like 40 years after this, which would have been bless you. <laughs> I, I know try, you're trying to be quiet. I try to be quiet. I'm sorry. Um, it sounds like a duck being squeezed. <laughs> but for 40 years, she really felt something was wrong with her. And I, it, it, in doing our research, I found this salon.com story. And I just, I didn't get much from the story, but I loved the, um, their subtitle to to talking about this and it said Christine and Mark didn't act the way a hostage was supposed to act and a new psychological disorder was born and I thought man have we touched on that like so many times about parents with you know missing kids not acting the way they're supposed to act and um I don't know people going through trauma essentially is what it boils down to right aren't acting in a certain way once again, going back to extraordinary situation and an individual with their own line of development and their own challenges. And I mean, you know, as you're telling this, I mean, like I had I, you provided with all this information, too, so that we could all we could go down separate rabbit holes on this. But it reminds me as you're talking about a good friend of mine who's a doctor was telling me about um I mean, I didn't realize how unbelievably expensive malpractice, malpractice insurance is. I mean, for here in Southern California, for a general practitioner, it can be like 100000 a year, which is just insane. What? I know. It's just insane. Um, I mean, it's not all like that, but it can be up that high. But the reason I give that example is because, you know, you hear a lot about malpractice and lawsuits. And I didn't realize this, but if a patient likes the doctor and the doctor do, actually does something that is negligent, odds are they will not pursue a lawsuit because they have positive feelings. This doctor's been taking care of me. Everybody makes mistakes. Right. You know, of course, I'm crippled now or I can't have kids now, but he or she really didn't mean to do that to me. Whereas if they don't like them, they're like, hell yeah, sue them for everything. So, I mean, I think it's akin to that of like, once you have shifted your perspective to the idea that this person is keeping me safe, Mm -hmm. whether it's a doctor who is negligent or a captor who maybe it's, I mean, it's almost the stuff, the stuff that I've read is leaning. If there is a, sort of an agreement it's that people are talking the researchers are saying that this is like a almost like a biological imperative like your primitive mind is taking over and you are latching on to anything that looks like it might be safe sure and it's going to get your needs met like a child with a parent sure it's so interesting because you wonder this is one of to me this is one of those situations we talk about where i go god how would i act right like would i would i hatch a plan you know, I, I don't I, know if I would. would I, when they were allowing the women to use the restroom, they would say if 
if like the two of you don't come back or one of you doesn't come back, I'm going to kill this one, the third one. So there's this, there is this threat being made of harm to someone else. You know, are you going to risk that? Are you going to say, oh, fuck it. I'm out of here and run up the stairs when. That's a hard thing to answer. I mean, it's a hard thing for me to answer. I don't know some people that, I mean, I don't know because I I think it's just hard to judge when you're not in that situation. And we also, I mean, I don't know if everybody has this. I like to have sort of badass superhero fantasies about myself, sure. which I'm not a bad house at all. I'm not a superhero. So you would but you roundhouse like, the gun out of their hand. Exactly. I totally clearly. Chuck Norris, Norris somewhere. <laughs> I would just like, I'd pretend that I was melting in a puddle of tears. And when they came over, I'd gouge out their eyes with my thumbs. <laughs> oh, and then God. I'd be grossed out because I'd have like eyeballs on my thumbs or something. <laughs> Ew. You'd pass out at that point. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so grossed out. Um, there's a, a podcast called Memory Motel by Terrace Mickey. It, it hasn't been up and running for a while, but there's an interview with Kristen and Mark. And oh, wow. Essentially, you know, this is 40 years later, but, you know, she says, after all these years, I did what I needed to do to survive. They made me feel like something was wrong with me. When you label someone with a syndrome, oh yeah, you know that that means that you're not well. And she says, you know, I don't feel like I did anything wrong. I'm I'm actually proud of how I acted. Um, and she really feels like they focus too much on her and the other women in a victim blaming sort of way. Absolutely, it's and bullshit. It's it absolute bullshit. It's like you didn't know, it, look at all the players and right, all the dynamics. And you know what it's coming from? It's coming from Freudian ideals ideas about his, hysteria. Yep. The wandering um, uterus is just right. driving those poor ladies crazy. Oh my god! They just can't control their lady parts. So Frank Oshberg was a New York City psychiatrist, and he—I mean—he was a pioneer and trauma science he authored the first book on ptsd i think he was on the committee that literally coined the term post-traumatic stress disorder um and he he's the one that started sort of more progressively using this term in areas of hostage situations or looking at it a little bit later like in 1978 but he defines stockholm syndrome as quote the unholy alliance between terrorists and captive involving fear, distrust, or anger toward the authorities on the outside. So his is kind of two-pronged. There's this trust that happens, and then there is this distrust that happens of the authorities or the police that are trying to help. Um, There's a movie that came out last year that I had not heard of it being made, but it's called Stockholm, and it stars Ethan Hawke and Numi Rep. Nummy Repes. Nummy Repes. Um, it's terrible. I oh, is it bad? <laughs> it's awful. They're both great actors, but I that's why them. we never heard of it. I know. Yeah, it's, it must I know. be terrible. Um, but it's about the the Stockholm case. It's. I, I think it fell flat because it was it was very dramatized. I mean, like they end up having sex like the night before they all get released. Of course, as one does. As one does, you know, she doesn't care about her husband and two little children anymore and just going to have sex with this guy, but... Sex on a grimy bank floor. That's just lovely. On the vault floor. Um, But I think it was good. It was trying to be a little bit comedic and sort of dark humor, but it just didn't work. Yeah. It was okay. It's on Amazon if you want to check it out. I think it was called The Captive or The Captor in Europe. It had a couple different names, but it's it's just Stockholm here. Um, So you were sort of talking about the evolution of how this term has been used. And 
maybe we can talk about a little bit more like psychological underlying concepts of it that you were also just sort of touching on. There's a lot of disagreement about the criteria. Tons. Um, There's it, tons of disagreement and not a lot of real research. In yeah. fact, it's, this is one of those things that happens in any um, any qualitative area of research or science is when this is always a bad indicator is when there's so little actual statistical data that everything that's written just references itself. So it's like so the there's same research that says there's no research. Right. But now we're going to say what we think we're, is happening. And then someone else cites that. And it's just the circle. It was really frustrating. Yeah. Because it's, re- it's really only 10, about 10 legit articles right. that I could find. Right. And I was going through all of EBSCO host and I touched on briefly one of the other um, social sciences uh, databases. But, you know, there's a great, I really liked what was boiled down in a uh, Scandinavian psychiatric uh, journal, ACTA. And this was done, I think, in 2008 with uh, several researchers. And I, I, they looked at like 12 different studies. Right. right. Yeah. And here's the thing that, that they, they did a great job is that they looked at all of the databases, PubMed, Embase, PsychInfo, Sinol, and they compared everything that had been written down and they found 12 research papers on Stockholm syndrome that met criteria of it, at least it could not be ruled out as something else. Right. Okay. And they, what they did, even with the conclusion that there's just not enough real research is that they boiled it down into four summations. And one is that there's a problem that exists already with the term. So the term itself, Stockholm syndrome, it's used in media sources to describe the positive bond a kidnapped victim develops towards their captor. So, this is officially, whereas it started out with this bullshit asswipe psychiatrist, <laughs> psychologist who, you know, was had a bias and was, you know, old school Freudian. It's almost like the Kitty Genovese story about bystander bias. It's like that's not actually, I mean, that research ended up being kind of true when we've proven it since then. But the original incident right. never happened that way. Right. And so it's the same thing here is that. We have now made it into something when the original source material is, is kind of corrupt in a way. But this is the term we use is Stockholm Syndrome. Sure. So there's no validated diagnostic criteria for this. It, it hasn't been described. There's no existing literature that is of actual research value. It's very, very limited. And what does exist doesn't really support a solid concrete um, parameters of a syndrome and by the way it's not in the dsm you know it's like they toss it around it's not a it's not a real i mean it's a real thing but it's not a statistically real thing so listen to this this is just super weird coincidence i was reading a child custody evaluation report last week and for the child the evaluating psychologist in the diagnosis put down ICD-10, which the ICD is, it's like the international version of the DSM for medical and psychiatric diagnoses. So it's a code. It's a code and a label. It's a code and, and a label. It's for billing, you, too, yeah, right? for billing, essentially. So this psychologist put down um, the code for post-traumatic stress disorder, and then in parentheses it said uh, Stockholm Syndrome, a variant of PTSD. 
And I, I just some online references. I don't even have my ICD-10 anymore. I had one um, when it came out. I don't Where is that thing? Um, but online references showed it as a, quote, synonym for this code for PTSD. Oh, that's that's but totally that's un, a, but that's unethical. I saw you it can't in a, do that. A report that's going to court. <laughs> wow, I just that's read really it last bad. week. So I think that's interesting. I couldn't find a whole lot that looked legit from online databases of the ICD-10. Um, I think it's interesting to think about it as, you know, maybe not meeting each criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder as it is laid out in the DSM. But as a trauma stress reaction, no, a try. Yes, right there, I'm completely with you. It's a trauma stress stress reaction. But I'm I'm actually reeling. I did I wasn't aware yeah. that that was happening because PTSD, and you know what? Who's the woman on the British um, profiler that does coercive control? Richards. Laura Richards is so great because she talks about in the UK they're moving away from saying PTSD as a disorder because right. it's it's labeling and it's marginalizing. So they're saying syndrome, and syndrome is actually a more apt descriptor because it describes a, conf, uh, a confluence of symptoms and symptomology. But for this, PTSD is or PTS S S <laughs> is the result of trauma. If there is a Stockholm syndrome, it is that trauma is resulting in behaviors, not necessarily long term. You know, just because you hold on to long term positive affect or uh, positive um, regard, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. positive regard yeah. for your captors, right? That's not fitting any PTSD criteria. No. So why would you... Well, and PTSD criteria doesn't talk about an interaction between two people either. I mean, right. it's just a trauma and the symptoms. So if you were on... I mean, that's just interesting to me. We should ask Nick and Jessa about this because it, if I was going to be the fantasy attorney that I think I can be when I listen to their podcast, sure. I would totally break that down and I'd be saying, well, this is not a thing. Right. Explain this to me. How can you say it's PTSD when these two things are... Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so they analyzed all the cases, um, the four common features that are that they could all agree on that they found evident in these 12 somewhat um, robust studies. I mean, robust is a, a exaggerating term. Each victim experienced direct threats. They were kept in isolation. They had an opportunity to, quote, unquote, escape during their period of captivity, but they failed to use it. And they showed sympathy for their captors. So okay. those are the four things that they were able to agree on. But then the huge consideration was is that even though they've identified all these patterns, there's no way to tell that all the patterns that are recognized are not hugely because of bias. Right. Because what I find interesting is that looking back at these cases of supposed Stockholm Syndrome, even the, you know, the precipitating event itself was really monocultured. Right. So would we see that in today's diverse culture? I don't think you would. I don't think you would either. Um, Let me interject here just to give you the components that I was given a bunch of materials by some friends from the FBI and their hostage negotiation unit. And so the FBI in their literature has uh, three prongs for they call them the components of Stockholm syndrome, which they 
they're also on the fence about if this is a thing or not. So one, hostages have positive feelings for their captors. Two, victims show distrust and anger towards authorities. And three, the perpetrators display positive feelings towards the victims as they begin to see them as humans. So it's sort of taking the those two prongs that we had at first, and it's also being reciprocated by the captors. Well, I find that very interesting because I mean, I'm sorry I was not a part of that conversation. Because, or if you have a chance, go back and ask about this because one of the article, the sociological article that came up in um, the sociological quarterly that I found really impactful was. Um, about Yvonne Ridley. Are you familiar with Yvonne Ridley? She was a British journalist, and she converted to Islam after having been released by her Taliban captors. So back in 2001, she was reporting uh, in situation in Afghanistan, and she was captured and, you know, kind of brought over. But let me, you know, from all of our data about, you know, uh, the religious sect Islam militants who were doing capturing, they weren't nice. Yeah, they were not nice. Is it convert to Islam or get beheaded? Right. Are those your two choices? Yeah. So, you know, even even if she did have a trauma based reaction that said, "This is the way I survive. I'm going to completely integrate this into my system because I got to stay alive," and then it stays with her. That's still not meeting. Right. The exchange, the the positive countertransference of uh, feeling between the captor no. and the hostage. I doubt that her captors are like, oh yeah, she's great. We see her as a human. Oh yeah, I doubt <laughs> that completely. I doubt that completely. Um, in so the research, the FBI has a, a database for all their hostage situations, um, where basically they just sort of have um, different items of behavior and how it resulted and interventions that were used. Um, it's called HOBIS is the, the data base. And 73% of hostage hostages showed no signs of Stockholm syndrome right. with, um, you know, whatever criteria they have. Which I, I didn't an, get a chance. That's to an enormous percentage, yeah. oh, right? Course, I mean, that's so course. significant. Yeah. Um, they said that a lot of times the captives can be frustrated with law enforcement, but it doesn't mean that it's developing into a syndrome, well, which doesn't I exist. Be, I think that actually can be said of the general public that doesn't understand the parameters within yeah. which law enforcement has to work. You know, right. you, because you and I happen to work in that world, even if we don't necessarily agree from a mental health perspective with the decisions that are made, we understand that they're they're operating within, right? Uh, you know, set guidelines, and then there, some, there are a lot of people walking around blissfully unaware of what is being done to keep them safe. Sure. And I say that as a you know complete hippie commie. Oh well, I w- <laughs> <laughs> ignorance is bliss, and yeah, exactly. Good for those people that are living there. Um, there are some, I, I found some, some papers out of Scandinavia, actually University of Stockholm, um, that take some really progressive feminist views in that Stockholm syndrome was really developed out of the government's need to explain how this shit show in Stockholm went so wrong. And guess who was the easy person to blame? These victims for acting the way that they were acting. So it's basically the Salem witch trials. It's it's finding a victim to make right. so that we can have understanding of this. So, it's, you know, they need to maintain 
a masculine image and concept of protection and control. And a good way to do that is by gendering victimhood through this crisis narrative and crisis response of these women. So it, it's interesting. Um, well, I, 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 okay, I find that fascinating. And I think, and it also takes me back to my earlier point of that I don't know if it's possible for that to happen in this way again because hopefully we move forward with a more progressive view and a more egalitarian view of women. Like, I, I know, man, I know a lot of women that if they're put in that situation, I feel sorry for their captors because they're going to be, sure. they're not going to fall for that. Then again, there are, other, there are other factors that, you know, I think that one of the things that you and I, we haven't talked about it yet, but we both read this in our various um, articles and our research. I mean, you've touched on it, is the idea of demonizing the police or demonizing the people that are trying to fix the situation. And how do you do that? I mean, it's some of the movie examples I have, like, mm-hmm. example that really well. But so even if you don't have a necessarily a homogenized um, group of all white people, all white bred women and men, and the cops outside, even if it's more diverse, if you can make the people outside look bad, right. then you're going to have more of a tendency to get sympathy sure. by sure. your captors, of your captors. Yeah. I mean, it would have been, you know, you talked about this psychiatrist, the Swedish psychiatrist being really old Dr. Asshole. Oh, yeah, that Dr. guy. Dr. Asshole. That guy. <laughs> what kind of IKEA Turn furniture is that? Turn to that's my um, of him chef. being very Freudian, but I feel like if he had looked at it from sort of an attachment, but like you were talking about before, you know, just how do I stay alive? Who's getting my needs met right now? Um, who is telling me when to eat, what I can eat, when I can go to the bathroom, when I can sleep? And I don't really know this woman next to me, except I, we've been here for three days and she's told me she has a child. And now my captor has told me that if I don't come back from the fucking bathroom, right. they're going to shoot her in the head. And so I'm going to be responsible for that little girl's mother dying. I mean, that's a healthy that's, ego just to survive. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a healthy functioning ego on a primitive level, I guess, yeah. you, you know, because it's, it's basically hitting one of the four F's it's, you know, fight or flight. Yeah. Feed or fornicate. <laughs> right. Well, if you're watching the movie, it's right. fornicating. And now, a word from our sponsors. Um, so there is a, um, there's a couple other in, in the world of hostage negotiations, crisis negotiations, sort of different veins or, um, I, I don't know, like different versions of this in a couple different situations. Um Law enforcement encourages bonding if it actually creates a bond so the perpetrator will not hurt the hostages. So, talk again, like sort of talking about them as people and talking about them as as humans with families to sort of develop empathy. Like the beginning of Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> it's not the beginning. It's like the middle. But oh, is it really? I thought yeah. it was close to the beginning. Oh, no, because she's been okay. She's been, <laughs> when she, when yeah. you kidnap her. Yeah. Um, as long as it doesn't inhibit negotiations or the tactics of right. the situation. Um, 
there's also something called the Lima syndrome when perpetrators sympathize with the hostages. It's overwhelming, overwhelmingly the other way. And that comes from a situation in Lima, Peru in 1996 when hundreds of hostages were taken at the Japanese embassy. And um, the hostage takers, I, I don't know if it's because there was there were so many hostages in numbers, there were hundreds of them, that it was just overwhelming and they started empathizing yeah. with them after a while. It sounds like a lot to control um, just as a situation and I could see how a perpetrator could let that get out of control really easily. But there's also broader and expanding use of the term. We I have seen it used with other victim-perpetrator relationships, whether it's sex trafficking, um, incest victims, intimate partner violence, cult members, prisoners of war, concentration camp prisoners. I mean, there's lots of different areas in which this sort of gets applied, which I think further dilutes this definition or criteria that doesn't exist. I feel like we're talking in circles here a little bit, but it, I think it's good to talk about it. And I think it problem, is. I think it's educational. I mean, it's, it's informing for us as professionals and for hopefully for our listeners for the idea, because I don't necessarily think it's the greatest thing that it's, I relate it to, you know, just throwing a, a mental illness label on someone, you know, arbitrarily without, right you know, understanding the long-term and, and chronic effects that even putting a label on someone can have. If we throw around this term and we let it take on its own life over decades, it's been 40 years now. Yeah. And it's so sort of integrated into the culture and yet it's not understood. It's not validated. It's not in many ways a real thing. That's harmful. I agree. Right. I agree. It, it's, it, I think it is more of, um, urban legend, something that we throw around is a term that like, you know it when you see it, but there's no real criteria right. to it. So we thought we would talk about a, a couple different cases and films in which, um, some people apply it and just see what we think. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's first, let's talk, with? we'll talk about the two, We'll talk about several cases, but I want to start with the, the two big ones. One that's a clear example and one is absolutely is not and isn't even it's only been bandied about a couple of times that sure. that it happened. But the first one and probably really one of the most famous here in the U.S. is uh, Patty Hearst. And uh, Patricia Hearst is she's now uh, 65 years old. I think she was living in Berkeley at the time. She was in college. And this was in, gosh, 1974. So it's only a year after Stockholm. Right. Okay. But ironically, it's a year after Stockholm, and this actually was a Stockholm example. I right. mean, it really pretty much fits all the criteria. And um, if you're not familiar with the Hearst family, the um, the Hearst family has been around for generations, and it's an incredibly wealthy and powerful family that was in publishing and all sorts of industry in the um, 20, early 20th century, all through the 20th century. Uh, Patty Hearst was uh, living in an apartment in Berkeley, and she was kidnapped 
by a left-wing terrorist group, which is a very rare thing to begin with. I mean, a left-wing terrorist group is not very... I mean, it's so far left that it's right-wing, yeah. basically. Right. It's just a terror... And it, actually, it's a terror group. But it was called the Symbionese Liberation Army. Um, and her ordeal in, in capture lasted 19 months. Uh, and in that 19 months, she went from being captor, no, I mean, went from being hostage into an active member of the crimes that were being committed by this organization. And they were involved in um, some explosives. They were involved in, in, a, in a very famous bank robbery where Patty was captured on camera with a machine gun in a beret. You dressed know, like them. Dressed like, like them, them, acting right. like them. Um, if you guys are in L.A., the LAPD Museum over in Highland Park has a really cool exhibit on this. Yeah. So uh, what I would say is interesting about this particular case, um, and I, I do also have to say I am, I have, I'm connected, I have like three degrees of separation from her. Um, never met her, probably never will, have heard she's actually like an, a, an incredibly lovely woman, just like really down to earth. But what we do know now is that um, she was really led quite a sheltered life. She was a very wealthy young woman, you know, with a, I mean, an incredible fortune behind her name. And she went to private schools, you know, she went to, she had the best of everything. And I think that that plays a part in it because she may really not have been exposed to a lot of the real world. I mean, not many people are at, at 19 or 20 years of age. Right. But for someone like her, sort of living the sheltered life with really no financial issues, and then she gets kidnapped by this um, organization. Now, they engage in actual brainwashing techniques. I mean, there was isolation. There was starvation. There were death threats. Mm-hmm. Um there was a lot of, I mean, when they, when she was finally rescued, I think she weighed around 87 pounds. She was like Isn't almost she kept starving. kept in a closet, yeah. essentially. Just, I mean, she, of all, all of the, all of the torture techniques right. that, that they had available to them, they, they used on her. And, um, but when you're brainwashing someone or when you're, when you're trying to, create that environment where you can bring someone over to your side is that you use um, intermittent reinforcement. So in between all of that terrible treatment, she would then get treated nicely and complimented and, oh, we're we're really worried about you. It's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. And then it would, you know, cycle back into the abuse. So someone who's young and inexperienced, you know, just really has their mind completely messed with. And, um, the motives supposedly of the SLA at that time were opportunistic. Like they had a hideout or sort of their, their, um, a lair, you know, a super villain, we call it a lair. She lived near it and they were, their main intent supposedly was to leverage, um, some political influence that they felt the hearse had, which is probably a legitimate concern because the hearse were in publishing to free two of their uh, members who had been arrested for another crime. So, I mean, there were huge amounts of money uh, involved at that time, like $400 million, which in today's 
money, you know, 40 years later would be an even more enormous sum. Was that, you mean like ransom that they're asking for, or that was what she was worth? Yeah, I mean, it's like, well, what would have, like, they demanded that, oh, God, what was it? It's um, that the Hearst family distribute $70 worth of uh, food to every needy Californian. It was like a really, like, like, ambiguous and weird sort of way out there plan. And that would have cost $400 at the time. Um, Maybe it was the same person that wrote the JonBenet Ramsey uh, letter. (laughs) Just, like, outlandish stuff that, like, couldn't even logistically be done. Right. I want a green helicopter. (laughs) Um, So... But Hearst did, like, I think he took out a um, a loan. I mean, I don't know why he needed to take a loan <laughs> right. for $2 million. But he donated a huge sum of money to um, the Bay Area uh, food banks, which made supposedly made a big deal. So I could but, see. But they didn't release her. They didn't release right. her at that time. I, I mean, we're talking 19 months versus six days, like in the Stockholm thing, or hours, which some of the yeah. others um, – you know, over a long period of time, and if you, using the term brainwashing, I mean, that when I said, like, we sort of know it when we see it, that's what I think of. Long period of time, a lot of these brainwashing techniques being used so that the person literally changes their entire view to align with their captors, not just, oh, I'm going to play nice to survive. Right. Which is how I feel like it got misdiagnosed at the beginning. Right. So... So in later interviews with Patty Hearst, she said that she was initially held for a week in a dark closet, blindfolded, tied up, um, and constantly threatened with death, just over and over constantly threatened with death. And she was sometimes let out for meals, um, but blindfolded, and then had to sit there and listen to them having political discussions. So eventually, and then they, so what we, what I'm going to describe here is what we call scaffolding. So they're laying a foundation while they're brown, brown, uh, brainwashing her brownwashing. I'm going to, I hope I'm (laughs) going to edit that out. Yeah, that sounds gross. Um, while they're brainwashing her, they're laying a foundation for the only thing that she has any relief from being tied up is these political discussions. And then her only access to any sort of thing when she's alone is they give her a flashlight where she can sit in the dark and she can read their propaganda. So, so the, the nice deeds revolve around what they're brainwashing her. Exactly. Ideas, so the nice deeds are just relief from the bad things right. and sort of what we consider neutral. And even she says in um, one of the later interviews is... Uh, the main captor has said, like, look, the war council, well, war council has decided, well, we're thinking about killing you um, or you can join us. And we haven't really decided. And, you know, you better start thinking about just, you know, figuring out which way you want to go. And she was like, well, if I'm going to survive, I'm going to have to go along with this. Okay. And, um, you know, she said that uh, she, you know, after they that had happened for a period of time, they finally took her blindfold off so that she could see up until this time she was only allowed the flashlight once she'd gotten back in the closet so she couldn't identify anyone there were other things about besides getting weapons training at this point she basically was told that she had sexual duties to her captors as well so there's all different layers like we said scaffolding of the cost just now upping the pressure and integrating her more tightly into their movement and she changed her supposedly changed her name to tanya um, was involved in a bank robbery, 
And, you know, she ended up uh, uh, doing, you know, doing time for her crimes because she did participate in these robberies. Mm-hmm. And her sentence was commuted by President Carter. And then she was given a full pardon by President Clinton, I believe. Um, but, you know, she's been pretty upfront with, you know, this is what happened. She doesn't minimize it at all. I think that's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. Yeah. But I really do feel like that even though there's a, there's controversy and there's still people that hold out today that there was no brainwashing, there was no Stockholm Syndrome, that she was given a battery of tests. She had dropped to uh, to 87 pounds. It's funny. I keep wanting to say 187 pounds. Like, because 87 is so unbelievable. Exactly, because 87 is so unbelievable. And when you see the pictures that were taken of her at the time, she looks almost skeletal. Um, but she was uh, evaluated by a psychologist uh, in 75, and her, her affect was so flat and that they said that there was probably an estimate of 20 points lowering her IQ score. Wow. As a result of all of this, uh, she had major gaps, not only in her memory of what was going on while she was a captive, but in her previous life as well. And that took years She's to just come back. to shut down. Completely I mean, shut down. Wow. And that's just mental. I mean, like at that the weight. lack of stimulation. Yeah. Except for what they were doing. And at that, at that weight for a grown woman, she could have oh, died sure. of renal failure yeah. just immediately. It could have happened. So, uh, so just, yeah, it, it, that's probably the closest we're going to get to this concept of Stockholm Syndrome. I would say that one. I mean, the, I feel like the Afghani uh, journalist captive, right, I think right. that's an interesting case. And then there's another one that definitely fits it, and that was, oh, God, what's her name? It is... Um, is that the Stan case? It's the woman in Germany that was kidnapped. She's kidnapped and held in a guy's basement and raped for years. And when she was rescued, I mean, it had been so many years. Yeah. And she didn't even have, like, as much freedom as, like, J.C. Dugard. But, um, like, she even admits today that she has not recovered from it. And he, when she got rescued, he killed himself. He put himself in front of a train because she would now he had had feeling you know he now has positive transference to her his only emotional support is gone and then she moved back into the house that she had been captive in for years which is just mind-blowing and i'm gonna get that name and put it up i'm so sorry i'm blanking on it but i wanted to move on just for the for time's sake yeah um elizabeth smart who I hear this term thrown around all the time when people talk about it just doesn't fit and by the way Please, listeners, just go online and listen to Elizabeth's TED Talk about resiliency and trauma and listen to her interviews. It's just, it's an unbelievable story. Uh, I'm sure if you're listening to us, you probably are at least somewhat familiar with it, but just a brief overview. How many times do we say that? Can I time out for a second? (laughs) No, not really, but like tangent. Remember we're at the True Crime Podcast Festival and we were doing the trivia crime show with Rebecca uh-huh. from Yellow Tape. <laughs> I don't know how many glasses of wine we were in, but I remember when Tim from Missing Moira Murray was up there and he went to answer a question. He said, Elizabeth Smart. And I'm like, no, that's wrong, because it was actually about the Black Dahlia. Right. 
I was all angry. Like, he's wrong. <laughs> you were really worked up. Shut up, woman in the front row. I know it's Elizabeth Short. <laughs> and by the way, I can't wait. I cannot wait to the next festival. I know. It's, it's going to be a blast. <laughs> and we had such a good time. But all Elizabeth right. Smart in 2002 at age uh, 14 um, in a sort of a suburban neighborhood of Salt Lake City. Very heavy, She's a, from a Mormon family, very heavily Mormon population. Uh, it's, it's actually like a horror movie. It's so unbelievable because you just, the I, and as a parent, and I'm not a parent, but the idea that someone fucking broke into your second story window of your house and kidnapped one of your daughters. Out of her bed. Out of her bed while her sister is sleeping in bed next to her. Insane. I mean, it's completely insane. So, uh, all sense of security shattered, just completely shattered and talk about somebody that was completely innocent. Like, I mean, very, and she, you know, she's the first one to admit that her family at that time was extremely religious and very conservative about their religious beliefs. Um, one thing that's funny, I, I, I always find it funny when extraordinary people say that there was nothing interesting about, about me. I mean, she even describes herself, and I think in her TED Talk, she's like, I was just this normal girl. There was nothing special about her. I'm like, no, she wasn't. She was incredibly, incredibly accomplished. She was a wonderful student. Wow. She was beloved by her classmates. She played the harp like wonderfully like they have all these tapes of her playing the harp oh wow that's a fucking hard instrument to play so i don't and i don't think she was trying to be like faux self-deprecating i think that right. you know she just doesn't really have an idea of kind of how amazing she is but anyway this asshole guy um david mitchell who was is clearly on the verge of psychosis, certainly a full-blown narcissist, as well as a couple of other things, um, kidnapped her at knife point, threatening while he laid next to her in her bed, basically, I will kill everyone in this house. I will kill you. I will kill your sister. I will kill your little brother. So clearly he had been stalking her. He had been, you know, scoping her out. Um, He gets her out. Her little sister was actually awake and was terrified because she heard the death threats. Mm-hmm. So Mitchell walks her for over five and a half hours into the mountains so that they go up over a mountain range and down into another valley to where they meet with his wife, who is a lovely piece of work, uh, Wanda Barzi. And suffice it to say is there was no Stockholm syndrome here. Uh, she was raped on a daily basis, multiple times a day. Sometimes Wanda, the wife, would sit and watch it. He performed. He felt he had a religious delusion that he was a prophet, and he had this uh, marriage ceremony with her, and just subjected this poor girl to horrific things. And even to the point where, when they went into town, and they were wearing like sort of, you know religious robes they would make her and wanda would wear veils over their faces uh in order to disguise them and he constantly kept the threats up as i will kill you i will kill everyone um and this is what people point out when they sort of try and affiliate stockholm syndrome with it is that she had these opportunities to flee or tell someone when they're out in public right and those weren't opportunities they weren't because she, she talks about her internal dialogue 
all during that time of how terrified she was that her, and she was very, I mean, very close with her family, but super close with her sister and her little brother and just terrified that something was going to happen to them. Right. And it wasn't until, um, but they, I think one thing when, when it all went down, when she was rescued and they were rescued on the street because a cop, a very thorough cop knew something was up. And I think he even says in his in latest in his interviews that he kn- there was something off about her body language. They understood this this person is scared. So crazy old man in robes mm-hmm. is crazy. You know, banged up, trashed older woman looks crazy. And here's this terrified, trembling teenager yeah. that's clearly too old, too young to be their daughter. Right. They're too old to have right. a daughter this age. Um. So he finally, and I would, there are wonderful excerpts from her audio book online on free. I think it's on CBS where she did several interviews um, for all the networks basically. But she reads from her audio book and she talks about this sort of meta narrative going on in her head while the cop is talking softly to her. And she can see like he, that Mitchell is glaring at her and she says she was so terrified by the glare in his eyes. And she knew he was going to kill, like, mm-hmm. he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. If he's going to kill my family. If I say anything and finally, and there was, I think one, yeah. in one of the reports, she was so scared. She said, I'm not that girl. I'm not that girl, which of course tipped the cop off to go, I want to talk to you. Are you Elizabeth? Are you Elizabeth? Your family really misses you. And as soon as he hooked into the family, the family she just you know started broke sobbing down. and broke down. So there was some reports that as the as Mitchell and Barzi were were pulled away, she was you know screaming or yelling, "Please don't hurt them! Please don't hurt them!" She may have said that. She may not. It may have been part of some some traumatic bonding. But, but compassion di- is not Stockholm syndrome, right? Either. No, absolutely. That's a good differentiation. And right I, there. I think that's what we see over and over again in these mislabeled situations. Yeah. So uh, I'm a huge fan now, and I've gotten her audio book because I want to listen to it. Yeah. And um, it's please listen to her TED talk. Uh, please read her Wikipedia page. It's very well done. Uh, and there are great links there. And, you know, uh, once again, this is with all due respect to to our uh, our field of mental health. You know, David Mitchell and his wife, Wanda Barzi, didn't spring out of nothing. You know, there's a re- th- these two were clearly mentally ill and should have been getting treatment or should have been watched. They should have been on somebody's radar. And there's no telling actually what crimes they committed before. And she, I think she's out That's on scary. probation and um, or parole, which I, I don't think either of them should have gotten out. Right. Um, so, and did you get to watch any other films? <laughs> I did. <laughs> so do tell. I, here's the thing is that when we talked about Stockholm syndrome as a possible topic, what came up for me was a movie. And I thought, wasn't there a movie that was sort of about Stockholm syndrome? Are we circling back to the exorcist? A little bit? Kind of. It is. And I was like, it was Linda Blair. And who was the, I couldn't remember who the male lead was. Linda Blair 
you know, in the seventies after, and it was a, I was like, it's a movie of the week. It's a movie of the week. So of course the magic of Google, I found it immediately. I know. I could not believe when you sent me the poster. <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so amazing. And here's the only thing that's incredibly disappointing because I don't want anybody to get their hopes up is, well, the name of the movie is Sweet Hostage. So right there, just a little vomit inducing, but, um, there are so many old like movies of the week that are posted on YouTube that you can stream, and somebody has posted it up n- numerous times and it's been taken down. Really? But the trailers are there okay. and full scenes are there, and you've just got to watch it. So it's based on a novel that was actually quite different. It was not. It was actually the novel was probably more of a. It was about a mentally ill individual, the, the uh, captor and. He ends up um, kidnapping a young woman, and they end up. It was a, it's an abusive relationship at first, but they have this traumatic bonding. But of course, in the seventies, you make a um, TV movie about it for Friday night, and clearly, I mean, most people don't realize, like, you know, you don't have streaming television. We didn't have streaming <laughs> television back there. Like, if there was a movie event on television, you were going to watch it. So, I all these things I couldn't. Re- I just couldn't remember, except that, like, what year did it come out? Um, it came out, I think it was 74. Like, oh, hold geez. on, let me, let me get to my notes. I know that's how much I remember. Okay. So. So you got Stockholm, you have Patty Hearst, and you have Sweet Hostage. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, there's so many things wrong with this. It's just so, so who's wrong. who's the male lead? Martin Sheen. Crazy. Martin Sheen, when he's like, I mean, he's like 29 years old. He's playing 29 years old. He's like skinny and muscular and, and tan hair. with like the Bobby Goldsboro haircut that's like in his face. I don't know who and that is, but okay. you wouldn't know. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, and this is the thing that's also problematic is that um, she was 16 years old at the time. So it's not. Like, it's one of these things where we realize, like, oh, wow. This is like our conversation on the stalking episode. Yeah. What is happening? Or, you know, like, you love the movie Ghostbusters. The original Ghostbusters is so great. And then you rewatch it, and it's like, oh, Harold Ramis' character uh, drugs women in bars because that's the only way he can get laid because he rapes them. You're like, oh, what the fuck? Right, you know, but you don't. But now we we didn't think about it back <laughs> Let's then. Let's gather the family around for this Friday night movie. <laughs> exactly. So um, th- the whole premise is that this young woman's uh, she is uh, lives in you know a rural part of the U.S. Her mother has passed away, and her dad is kind of, she's responsible for taking care of the farm. So it's like she's raising chickens, she's doing all this stuff, and it's Linda Blair, she's 16, she's totally adorable, totally adorable. But her, the, the truck breaks down. So she's hitchhiking, and this you know guy in a tank top picks her up, and he's totally charming. And of course, they're both, Linda Blair at that time was an okay actress. She was great. She wasn't a great teen actress, but she was okay. Martin Sheen was a natural, like, really great actor. I bet he's completely embarrassed to to see this rape fantasy done now. But, um, so she gets in the, he uh, picks her up and is going to take her uh, home. And then she's talking about, how bad life is on the farm and like, Oh, my dad, if I leave, he'd come after me with a shotgun. I kind of run the farm. I do everything, blah, blah, blah. And he's talking, 
you know, sort of quoting Shakespeare and Thoreau and all these writers. He's like, you need to live. You need to live your life. Well, mister, my turn's right up here. And then you see this dramatic, his boot goes into the gas pedal. Floors and it, it. Floors it. Hey, mister. Hey, mister, that was my turn. He's like, you're going to live. You're going to live. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just awful. It's just awful. Um, so there's some things about the story that I thought were like really cool. So it takes place over, I think about four days. And one of the things that's cool is she gets very smart about how she's going to rest, get herself rescued. Like play this. Right. So when they need supplies, like he takes her to this remote cabin and they need, you know, food. And he, so every time he, she sends him to the store, she asks him for something that, only her mother ever asked for at the store. And like one is a set of curtains with a gold thread through it. And like when he asks about it, like the woman, the woman realizes like something's up here. But in the meantime, so there's this scene where he's barreling back to the cabin. But by this time he's bought her like a Disney princess dress. And he said, your name's not Doris May Withers. Your name is Christabel and you're the queen of England. And then they do this whole montage, this whole like kind of montage of, um, to this really bad 70s song called, I mean, they wrote, must've written it for it's called strangers on a carousel. Folks, you have to go to YouTube and watch this. It is so hilarious, but he, so he barrels up. Oh, oh no! During the montage, oh, get this. So you know that he's like a total hipster because he's wearing like a top hat, and he has like a pirate shirt, and he's kind of dancing around the apartment, and then he's playing a recorder, and she's dancing for him. So suddenly they're showing this moving into that they're in a relationship together. Milady. Oh yeah, yeah. He calls her uh, no. Milady. No. He does. He calls her Milady. <laughs> Yes, he yes. calls her. Um, uh, oh, by the way, that truck had no seatbelts. Like I was like total. It's the seventies. I know there's no seatbelts. Seat so he calls her Milady. Uh, he wears a pirate shirt and a top hat, and he plays a recorder for her to dance for. No. Okay, so <laughs> the thing is also uh, Linda Blair is doing like this really bad Southern accent. So I'm is all um and who are you? Who are you? I'm Christabel. <laughs> <laughs> So Which is weird, right? Bell, Beauty and the Beast. Yes, exactly. Stockholm Syndrome. Let's um, dance. So I'm not sure about what the rights are because if the rights, if if I knew I could put the song up, I would put the song up because it's hysterical but I, I can't so maybe I'll put some music underneath this that's that's hokey. <laughs> we'll but, look into um, that. The, I, one of the one of the lines from the hokey 70s song is she was young and kind of pretty. She's like, well, that's <laughs> damn it. Damning with thank praise. <laughs> but so at the end of it is like, this, so he's barreling up and he's like, you got me in trouble. You and he's like, throws her to the ground. She's like, that was before I fell in love with you. You big, Oh, you're being, you big dope or something like that. And she goes, I have a surprise for you, but no, I'm not going to give it to you. I made you an apple crumble. You think I don't like you if I make an apple crumble? It's just the weirdest dialogue. What the hell? I know. So he goes, well, show it to me. And she, they go into the cabin and she shoves a piece of paper in his face. He's like, what is this? Look on the back. What is it? It's a poem. I wrote you a poem. And she wrote, 
She writes this poem called Cabin of the Dawn, and she's sitting down. She's all angry at the table, and she's going to read it to him. And then this flute music starts. Maybe it's a recorder, not a flute. So it's like a harp and flute music. And she's this. I'm going to do my dramatic reading. Of, Please. Okay. So, I'm ready. Cabin of the Dawn by Doris May Withers. My truck broke down when I was on my way home, and along came a man speaking in poems. I thought he was nuts when he called himself Kublai Khan, and he took me away to his cabin of the dawn. First, I thought that I was in a terrible mess, but he's made me a lady, even bought me a dress. He's taught me all sorts of things. From the very start, he opened my mind and gave wings to my heart. At first, I just couldn't figure this funny man out. Then I realized he's teaching me what life's all about. Like wanting things enough to make them come true. I guess that's what he means by Xanadu. Not the roller skating musical <laughs> movie. Okay. Life on the farm was almost like hell. Now I'm Queen of England and my name's Christabel. We dine on delicacies and plenty of fruit. And I dance for him as he plays me his flute. I think he's been awful lonely for a while and just needs a friend that can make him smile. What he doesn't know is he's got one in me, and together we make awful nice symmetry. And then what do you think happens next? I can't even imagine. Like, all the police and deputies and the townsfolk come in, and they shoot him. The townsfolk. The townsfolk. And then she runs to him, and she, like, she's sobbing over his body. And she she dabs the blood from her from his bullet wound onto her heart, under her flannel shirt. I guess she took off her Christabel dress. Wow. Yeah. What a piece of gold that is. I gotta find the full movie. I gotta find the full movie. Oh. Now, something, I mean, like, but, I mean, in all seriousness, if we're gonna bring it back to any kind of, any well, kind of seriousness. Well, no, I, I honestly think we should end on this note. <laughs> well, I mean, the idea is that, you know, once again, that's, it's, like Jessa would say, it's fucking kidnapping, right? right. So that, it's... They're not really a trauma bonding, but, you know, it's indicated that they had sex. So he had sex with a minor. So it's, you know, that's wrong. And it also goes back to what you were talking about in Mary Kay Letourneau's uh, episode about this grooming of I'm going to show you the world. Look what he's done for me. He's taught me all about life. Right. I mean, that's grooming. Those are grooming behaviors. Yeah, completely. That is just too good. Yeah. There's also a really adorable young woman, teenager on YouTube. Her name is EB, E-B-Y. And for some reason she popped up when you look for these videos Uh and I don't even know where she watched the full movie, but she's a a sweet young woman, really funny. And she compares the book and the movie and she's really funny. She's a little off. I mean, she doesn't really get that there's a huge age difference, and that's completely inappropriate. Because well, he does look young. He doesn't yeah. look like he's 30-something. But, um, but if she's just comparing the two, yeah. that's her thing. So. That's so funny. Okay. New theme music. Oh, how many? <laughs> Can you write me a poem, by the way? Poem. No one ever writes me a I'm poem. I'm going to write you a poem. <laughs> All right. We oh, are just ending wonder, there. Now I'm just wondering how many listeners we're going to lose from my dramatic reading of that oh, poem. Oh, no. You're going to oh get requests God. to do more. Please, bonus episodes of yes, Scott reading. Scott just reading bad poetry yeah. in a Southern accent. That was fun. That's a, such an interesting topic. I'm actually presenting this topic 
at our crisis negotiation training that we have coming up. I thought two birds with one stone, you know, let's you got all your research. deep dive and go into it. And, um, do I get to come in and do the dramatic reading of this um, poem? No. Damn it. I don't think the SWAT team would um, go for that. <laughs> um, Christopher. They feel like, what the fuck is going on, Shiloh? You no longer can come out on our I'm box. telling you folks, sweet hostage, look it up, please. Oh, just look it up and amazing. hit the post on the Facebook page, what you think about the music video of Strangers on a Carousel. <laughs> Strangers on a Carousel. Cool. All right. Good job. Thank you for all that. I think I, I really thank you for that research. <laughs> that was quite different than mine this week. <laughs> all right. So stay tuned, folks. We got lots of cool things coming up. Please uh, rate, subscribe on Apple iTunes. Give us a like and um, hit us up with stuff you want us to cover on our social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. And um, look for some announcements for like I, I was kind yeah. of dropping hints. We've got events happening this fall every month, uh, three in Los Angeles, one on the East Coast. I know. We We're cannot, very excited, but yeah, we'll announce it next time. We're really looking forward to uh, more live events to be able to connect with people. So until next time, we will see you on L.A. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye-bye. folks. Bye.